You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Every year, 600,000 hysterectomies are performed in this country, and fibroids remain the number one reason that women undergo surgery. While removal of the uterus is sometimes the best treatment, uterine artery embolization is an option for many women with symptomatic fibroids. Today, we are joined by Dr. Bruce McLucas, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UCLA, to discuss who should have a uterine artery fibroid embolization and who should be performing the procedure. Welcome, Dr. McLucas. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd like to start with factors that, that you think predict the success of a uterine artery embolization. What pre-procedural evaluation do you, do you recommend to determine if someone is, in fact, a good candidate? It's important to exclude people who apparently have fibroids but may not, or uterine myoma, I guess we should call it the real term. It's interesting, in our series, approximately 5% of the patients who come to us with a diagnosis usually given to them by a clinician of uh, uterine myomata have another condition. We've had uh, lots of patients with uh, adenomyosis, lots of patients with precancers with cancers. So establishing that this really is myomata causing the problem, that's the first and the most important thing about success. I mean, this uterine artery embolization is not a treatment for a number of other diseases. So pre-op evaluation, very important. Do you do an endometrial biopsy on every patient or only if they have a thick endometrium or abnormal bleeding? I think it depends on the symptoms and it depends on the imaging. These days there's a pretty good correlation between the imaging of the endometrium on a MRI, even a good ultrasound. And if the patient's symptoms are those of a subserous myoma where it's pain and pressure, I don't think you necessarily have to do an endometrial biopsy. Sometimes you have to do more than an endometrial biopsy. Sometimes to exclude uh, malignancy, you need to do a hysteroscopy. Do you get an MRI on every patient that you're considering for the procedure, or you will make the decision based on an ultrasound? I think ultrasound is enough for pre-op evaluation. We could discuss that as a separate topic, but obviously the issues with MRI is cost and exposure to radiation. There's a number of things that you're going to get from a MRI, but I think an ultrasound is probably uh, enough for most patients. Having said that, postoperatively, every patient that I uh, embolize, I encourage to have a MRI at two months to see if we've knocked out the blood supply to the myomata. So once you've established that fibroids do seem to be the problem, are there any patients that you would exclude who are not candidates? That's a topic that is being discussed in in many circles right now. I think at some point we should discuss the patient who wants fertility. I think there are patients whose uterus is just too big. We published an article in 1998 looking at the causes for failure. We found that lyomyomata that were larger than 10 centimeters in diameter tended to not succeed in this procedure. An AP diameter of the uterus greater than 20 centimeters was also a predictor of failure. So size probably is one important thing. And in addition to size, do you exclude patients who have a high single intensity on a T1-weighted image since many feel that's a predictor of a poor response? No, 
know, uh, fibroids go through a life cycle. Myoma to go through a life cycle. There's going to be certain degrees of degeneration of one myoma versus another. What we're going to do with uterine fibroid embolization is to put everyone on the same track for degeneration. So, no, I don't exclude those. Well, what about the menopausal woman with new onset or worsening symptoms related to presumed lyomyoma? Are you concerned about a risk of lyomyosarcoma that may be missed? I think you've got to be careful in the menopausal patient. Some of the articles that have been written about sarcoma discuss the fact that it's usually singular. Now, that's important. Most myomata are not. Most myomata are multiple. But, so that's something clinicians can look at. And I think it depends greatly on whether the patient had this diagnosis prior to the menopause or not. For many years, we were telling patients, if you have a myoma, wait until the menopause, it'll, it will shrink, it'll go down. We, we now know that that's not the case. It depends on how soon before the menopause the diagnosis was made. But anytime you've got a, a growth inside the reproductive system in a postmenopausal woman, you're your level of uh, suspicion has to go up. Now, you also mentioned women who have adenomyosis. What is your experience treating women with adenomyosis, and do you think that uterine artery embolization should even be offered to women who are likely to have it? There's two categories that I'd like to discuss. The first is the patient with adenomyosis alone, where she has no lyomyomata, or a coexistent, two problems coexisting together. That's adenomyosis plus lyomyomata. In the first category, I I have to say that there is simply no good evidence that uterine artery embolization does anything more than stop bleeding for a very short period of time in women with adenomyosis. The disease process, the pathophysiology continues to worsen, and these people will end up having a surgical hysterectomy. Now, in the patient who has both conditions, and sometimes the MRI is very helpful to make sure that that's what we're dealing with, you have symptoms that can be caused by either one of these two. The, the symptoms of adenomyosis and the symptoms of lyomyomata are pretty much the same, menorrhagia, dysmenorrhea. These symptoms can exist in either one. So if the symptoms are caused by the myomata, I think we're going to have a 50-50 chance of helping these people. I, I will decrease my expectation from 90% down to 50%. But given the fact that hysterectomy is the only cause, the only cure, I should say, for adenomyosis, then most of the patients are still willing to take that 50-50 chance. You're listening to Advances in Women's Health on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Bruce McLucas, a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at UCLA, about predictors of success for treatment of symptomatic fibroids with uterine artery embolization. Dr. McLucas, you're a gynecologist, of course, as am I. The majority of uterine artery embolizations in this country are performed by interventional radiologists, and you, in fact, are one of the few gynecologists that performs this procedure. Now, from my point of view, the obvious advantage of a gynecologist performing the procedure is that we, of course, want to take care of our own patient, and we know the patient better and probably the indications and who is a good candidate. But the advantage of having the procedure performed by an interventional radiologist is that they're quite frankly, more experienced. And the published data with good outcomes is based on an experienced operator who does a high volume. So my question to you is, do you think a gynecologist who does maybe 10 procedures a year can have the same outcomes as an interventional radiologist who does 10 a month? 
Dr. Stryker, that's a really good question. And when we talk about some of the advantages of a gynecologist teaching the patient about the risks and benefits of this versus other procedures, we do have somebody who, who understands the disease and understands the likelihood of recurrence after myomectomy, understands the problems you can have with a pedunculated myoma, and is able to follow the patient for any post-operative problems. So continuity of care is very important, and we have to emphasize that. Who's ever doing this procedure, whether it's being done by an interventional radiologist, uh, vascular surgeon, I've taught many vascular surgeons, and cardiologists are now doing this procedure. So it's not just done by interventional radiologists. Continuity, whoever is going to do that procedure, is very important. And the very few deaths that have taken place worldwide from this have almost always been because of unrecognized sepsis, and, and there's just no excuse for anyone having a mortality after a uterine artery embolization. So start by saying that if you're not going to do it as a gynecologist, the team approach is really important. That a, You can't have a doctor just do a procedure and abandon the patient. You have to have a good pre-op evaluation and a good post-op. Now, if we can turn that question around and, and say, what about a gynecologist who's doing uh, 10 of these procedures a year? I would say that a interventional radiologist who's only doing 10 procedures a year is going to get less good results than one who's doing them all the time. So just like surgery, you and I learn from years of experience and by talking to our colleagues, uh, I think there is probably an amount of uh, volume that any doctor doing a procedure needs to have to be proficient in it. No, I totally agree. I am just curious if you think realistically most gynecologists are going to get the same kind of volume as a busy interventional radiologist. I agree that an interventional radiologist who does 10 a year probably shouldn't be doing them either. But I know that you are very interested in, in teaching gynecologists how to do this and encouraging gynecologists to do this. And while theoretically I agree with you, I'm just really concerned about people doing it who don't have enough experience. We're doing this interview on television. I would show you a picture of the simulator for uh, uterine artery embolization that I've been developing with the Mendes Corporation, which is going to be really leveling the playing field for gynecologists. It's going to allow someone like yourself who hasn't ever done catheter manipulation to, to get a feeling for what the catheter is going to be like. It's an incredibly realistic simulator that we're going to be bringing into production fairly soon and will allow the interested gynecologist to get his or her feet wet. I'd like to thank Dr. McLucas for joining us today and sharing his viewpoints on uterine artery embolization for treatment of symptomatic uterine fibroids. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Well, hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor. But, you know, I saw this commercial for something called Avista, Reloxifene Hydrochloride. Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer. Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? 
I don't have a family history. Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, but I think for you, the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, Doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. <laughs> no problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots and should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands, or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lilly sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA.